Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Eric, for reading that. What a great worship session. If the kids want to go out, Annette's got an activity plan. That's you, mate. <laughs> ah, isn't it great? Last week we had Easter, and uh, that was fantastic. The, the Good Friday service, and uh, now then the Easter Sunday. And it was really good. And that means we've come to a new sermon series. And I want to just tell you a little bit about the series that we're about to undertake because we're really excited. Uh, and, and before I get into the message this morning, and I, this is the first time I've sort of been in this lectern in this way, and it's sort of want to. Yeah, Joe knows what I'm talking about. So, <laughs> the sermon series, the sermon series, this is it. Well, this is our piece of paper. This is what it looks like in our planning meetings. Uh, this week. In the next four weeks, we're looking at Jesus Revealed. And it made sense to us as the the team that we would go from Easter into actually what happened next, in which is what Jesus was revealing himself to the eyewitnesses. And so we're going to go through what those eyewitnesses, in this week, it's Mary, uh, Mary Magdalene, and what that means for um, us and why that adds validity to our faith, and what does that bring? What do we learn from their experiences? So we're doing that. But it doesn't stop there, see, because this sermon series that we have planned is 12 weeks. We've got a 12-week sermon series all planned out, and it's in three parts. So you're not going to get eight weeks of the same thing, you're not going to get four weeks of the same, well, you get four weeks of three lots. So we've got Jesus Revealed, that's what we're calling the first part, and then we've got Jesus Established. So it's the church is taking shape. The eyewitnesses' accounts are becoming valid and then the church is being shaped out of that. And we're going to look at some things like the day of Pentecost. It's going to fall in that same section actually when the calendar lines up. We're going to look at the Great Commission, what that looks like. And we've got a couple of really exciting sermons there. And then from that, we're going to do another four weeks on what we're calling the community of the church, the community of Christ. And then what we're going to do in that in particular is take one of the epistles, one of the letters that uh, John wrote to one of the churches, and probably Corinthians we're thinking at the moment, um, but we're going to actually unpack some of the lessons that Paul was writing directly to. And then we're going to say, how do we as a community in the church actually live out some of these things that he's talking about? So we we want to look at that. Overall, what we're calling the series... So we've got the three parts, Jesus revealed, Jesus established, and the community of, the, um, of Christ. We're calling all of that establishing a community of believers. And that's what it is. We want to develop in ourselves a more Christ-orientated belief system, a more established community that we get to live amongst, that deepens our relationships here, that deepens our relationship with God and takes us further into understanding with Him and so on. So it's going to be a big 12 weeks. It's exciting. Uh, We're really excited as a preaching team. Those that we've let in on it anyway. (laughs) No, we are very excited though. It's going to be a great series. So encourage you to come along and if you don't manage to catch one, catch up on the internet. If you don't know how to get onto the website, come talk to me and we'll show you where we store all the sermons so you can hear them. But this week, Jesus approaches... Uh, it reveals himself to Mary, Mary Magdalene. 
And uh, I'm going to do this a little bit differently to how I normally preach. Normally when I preach, we take the whole, I take the whole reading and then I take maybe two or three sort of like um, points that come out of the reading and try and explain that to you and, and try and elaborate on that and go in a bit deeper. But this week what I want to do is we're going to go through the story and take it apart bit by bit, okay? Is that good? And hopefully you'll learn some things that you haven't noticed so far before in the reading. Uh, and hopefully, also, we'll be able to um, get a few life applications out of it too. So, this week is a little bit different for me, so my notes are a bit more dense. Just if I'm looking down at them, that's why. <laughs> but, we start in John 20, and Jesus has just died, the Sabbath has just happened. And John 20 starts off, if Chris, you want to put up verse 1 to three, four, one through three, 3, we'll read it together goes like this, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So what we want to notice here, that is that it's the first day of the week. The Sabbath is over. And it's at the first light of after the Sabbath that Mary Magdalene was there. The other Gospels tell us that it was the very, very beginning of the day. You know that time, even I've gotten up for a sunset. And just before the sunset, there's that moment of darkness before the, the light eclipses through. Sunrise. Yeah, sunrise even too. You can tell which ones I see more of. <laughs> before sunrise, sorry. When, I, when you see the sunrise, there's that moment of darkness just before this, the, the light comes through. It's at that time. We're painting a picture here. And some of the other Gospels, if you read Matthew, Mark and Luke, they would tell you that there was a group of women. There was actually a group of them. It wasn't just Mary Magdalene. So why does John actually just point out Mary Magdalene? That's the question we have. What he's doing is he's setting up the scene and like a laser beam, he's refining what he's actually wanting to tell you. He's being really precise with the key details, okay? Which tells us for the whole rest of the reading, we've got to be tuning into the little things. So like a laser beam, he's stripping away everything else and he's putting his entire focus on the essential things. John only tells us about Mary Magdalene and the morning and that she's approaching the tomb. One of the things you should know about Mary Magdalene is actually that we're not told a whole heap from, about her. She comes from, a, we know two things. She comes from a town called Magdala. We get that from her name, Mary Magdalene. Magdala is on the Sea of Galilee, which Jesus actually taught a lot about. And uh, it's uh, on the coast there. So she came from that town, which they've recently actually found in modern day archaeology. But that's different. We won't go on there. She's from Magdala, and in Mark 16, verse 9, it also mentions that Jesus cast out seven demons from her. They're the two things we know about Mary. She's from a town called Magdala, and Jesus cast out seven demons from her. It's not really the most flattering uh, description in the gospel of yourself, is it? <laughs> Hi, I'm the one that Jesus cast out seven demons from. <laughs> but in the same way, if you say it definitely... Isn't it a glorious description? I had not one, not three, not five, but seven demons cast from me by Jesus. 
And Mary Magdalene would say that Jesus delivered her from those. And I wonder, I just wonder, maybe that had some special part why Mary was so uh, early getting to the tomb. Why her devotion to Jesus was, Jesus was so. Because she had these seven demons that were living inside of her and maybe she was afraid that actually she was going to be repossessed uh, by the demons because Jesus was no longer alive. Maybe. I can't say I'm not Mary. But it might have happened like that. And maybe that's the reason why she's coming back to the tomb, to be coming to Jesus Despite all this, she was pushing all those thoughts aside. She had no expectation that Jesus was alive and she was going to the tomb to find a dead body and prepare it even further because the burial happened over the time of the Passover and they weren't allowed to work thoroughly. So it would have been that the body wasn't fully prepared. So she was coming back to finish the job now that the Sabbath was done. Mary comes up to the tomb and what did she see? We can answer that. What did Mary see? The stone wasn't there. The tomb was open. I want you to understand something right now. She did not go, he's risen. Did she? No. She actually went, somebody's stolen the body. It wasn't her first thought that he's risen. Someone stole the body. And don't you think that's remarkable? It's through the, throughout the text, so I want to explain a little bit further. There's uh, this, that when people say Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, people say, have this argument called psychological wish projection. Anything in psychology, you know, it's going to get a big fancy name like that. But it's called psychological wish projection. And that is that someone really, really wished that something happened so they made it a reality in their life. Right? And so this is a common argument that people use to come up to people and say, Jesus didn't really rise again. But when we look at Mary's attitude here, that resurrection was the last thing from her mind. And the fact that she didn't go, he has risen to right from the beginning gives validity to the fact that he rose. Someone stole the body. She wasn't wishing that he was rose. She accepted he was dead. She fully expected to find a dead body within the tomb. She came running to the disciples and the other disciple that one Jesus loved and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Note here that the other disciple that Jesus loved is John. The one that wrote the gospel, it's John. Okay, so whenever we see the one that Jesus loved, we're thinking of John. So she came running to Simon Peter and John, the, own, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reach the tomb first. So note this, right? The, the news hits John and Peter, and the tomb was empty. It was rolled away. What was their attitude? Instantly, they rush. They didn't say, wow, that's interesting. Maybe we should alert the authorities. 
There's no sense of uh, putting it onto anyone else. It's Simon and Peter rush off. They sprint. They had such an investment in the life and ministry of Jesus that they had to investigate it for themselves. So without any hesitation, they ran and sprinted. What a, there's a little funny part in here, actually. John is so humble that he doesn't mention himself in the gospel, but he's got enough pride to mention the fact that he outruns the old fella. <laughs> Isn't that funny? John got to the tomb first. And he, he didn't wait up for Peter. He went to investigate the tomb. So we read from verse 5. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He stored the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple had reached the tomb first and also went inside. Sorry. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciple went back to where they were staying. Notice in verse 5, the first thing that happens is John arrives to the tomb and what he does is he stops. Now, let me explain quickly the tomb. Um, it's a rich man's tomb. It's not a, a, a simple tomb. It's a, quite a rich man's tomb. And a rich man's tomb would have actually been a family tomb, right? So you've got this section. Uh, you come in and there's like an entrance and then there's a section on the side and it's a distinct part different. And in that you would have had a laid area which the recently deceased would have been on and there they actually um, would have been able to see the body if it was there. Right, and then from there, when it decomposed a bit more and it was just bones and a few more other parts, then they actually put that into a box, which was behind that entrance, but a little bit further, and they actually put the box back there so that it could be used for the next person in the family. Right? So when Peter, sorry, John, when John gets there, he doesn't enter, he stoops down, the door, I've, I've seen the door, it's about this big, so, you know, most people have to sort of come down and look into it. And so he stoops down and looks into the tomb, right? And what does he see? He examines it. Now, this is the first, first Greek word that we're going to look at today. Because remember how he said John's all about the detail in this story? There's three words I want to focus on. And the first word is for saw. And uh, it's a, we, we used examine, I think, in this translation. But what it actually means, the original Greek, is it means to see a material object, right? The first Greek word, to see a material object. That's important. We'll come back to it. He saw something, and something must have triggered inside him that said, I'm not going in. He's noticed something, and, and maybe it was he was afraid, you know, that the body was unwrapped and put somewhere in the tomb by bandits or grave robbers or something. Maybe someone was trying to uh, scare the disciples even further. Who knows? But for some reason, he saw something, a material object, and stopped in the door. Right? Maybe, maybe, who knows what it was, but he stopped. 
But that doesn't stop John. Uh, it doesn't stop Peter, sorry. Verse 6. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen laying there. Can you all imagine this, right? The older man, he was probably about 20 years older than John. That's what some scholars think. Oldest, maybe 15. Uh, but this older man, huffing and puffing, right? Part red in the face, parched probably. And uh, he comes and he catches up. And he's like, get out of the road and walk straight into the tomb. There's no stopping Peter. Peter's, in, uh, that's impulsive Peter. Nothing is going to hold him back. And what does he see? Now, this is the second word. Let me find my second word here. Going in, he saw. And the second time, we have to look at the Greek word. The word saw here means to contemplate. To contemplate, to observe or scrutinise. So the first time he sees a materialistic object and the second time here he's contemplating. He's actually observing the scene. And Peter notices there's something different about the grave clothes. Now the grave clothes was they would have wrapped his body in one piece but then they also had like a head bit that went over that and that was separate. And both parts were arranged distinctly. And what Peter was able to examine was that this couldn't have been the work of grave robbers. It couldn't have been the work of uh, Pharisees. No one in their right mind would have wrapped the, left the wrappings and actually in such a way which it looks like just the, the body's dissolved from it. He's to do something supernatural has happened. The linen cloths were there, but the body had been removed. The linen cloths were orderly and the linen cloths weren't removed. But any grave robbers, uh, it couldn't have been done by any grave robbers or vandals. So in verse 8, we read, Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. So Peter's come in, had enough courage to go in, which fills John with enough courage to follow. And this is where we get the third, the third term for seeing in, in this reading. And it's quite incredible. The third meaning for seeing here actually means that he understands. The connotation of seeing here is that he understands what's happened. The first word was to see something, a physical object. They saw a physical object. Then Peter came in and he observed, he examined the scene. But then the third time, when John comes in, he actually understands what's happened. Why we go to college for this sort of stuff. Hey, Kerry. <laughs> but isn't it funny also, just coming back to a few quirks of John, it's not funny, isn't it funny that he mentions he's the first in the foot race to the tomb, but he's not also afraid to point out that he's first in the spiritual race to understand. Just a funny little insight. When John came in, he went a step further than Peter. 
Peter saw and examined, but John understood. The distinct layout of the grave clothes convinced John that he was risen from the dead. And as far as we know, John was the first person to understand that Jesus Christ was risen. That he was resurrected from, the, from death, the body was gone, the grave was empty, but Jesus was risen. The first person. But, verse 9 comes in with some, uh, with some, oh, forgotten what they're called, but let's just read it, you'll see it. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. You can see what I got, oh, it's not up there. Chris, can you put up verse 9? Thanks, Matt. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. In understands, John perceived that Jesus was risen from the dead, not by seeing the risen Jesus. And when we start to go into the rest of the, um, the Jesus experiences after his resurrection, we'll note they didn't believe until they see him. Even when Mary comes in, she still has to see Jesus before she believes that he's risen. But John is understanding and believes before he's met the risen Jesus. He's the only one to do it. And in 1 Corinthians, it even says, Jesus appeared to hundreds of them at a time. But this verse, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead, shows that he fully didn't understand. So what was it? Because he, he, he knows that the resurrection's happened. Here's the idea. John understood the fact of the resurrection, but he didn't understand the meaning of the resurrection. They're two different concepts, right? The fact of the resurrection, let me tell you about that first. I, we could go on about the rules of evidence or the historical framework or how it all fits together. Right? These are little, these are theolog theological uh, things that we do in study, which say Jesus happened. As a historical event, he happened. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not, Jesus rose from the dead. It's proven in history. It's not a matter of, uh, uh, I believe he rose from the dead, so I'm not sure. It's not like that. The historical fact is that Jesus has rose from the dead. And it will be throughout the ages. It's not subjective. So Peter understood the historical fact, but he didn't understand the meaning. So what does, the mean, what does it mean that Jesus rose? What it means is that, we, we went over this last week, but it's Jesus said who he said he was. It means that Jesus is God. The other thing that the resurrection means is that Jesus rose from the dead. And so because we as his believers believe in Jesus' resurrection, we also get to rise from the dead. Because we trust, we will also rise. 
And there's so many other more things we can talk about what the resurrection means. But we went through this quite thoroughly. So again, if you want to know where on the website we keep that, I'll be more than happy to show you that sermon and you can hear it a lot more detailed. But let's bring it back on track to where we're up to in the story. John understood the fact of the resurrection but was yet to understand the meaning of the resurrection. And we start in verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying as she wept. She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? You would have thought that uh, John and Peter would have at least stopped for a little while to uh, assist the crying woman, wouldn't you? This older lady that's just distraught and wrecked. You would have thought they had enough chivalry to be able to stop and sit with her for a period of time. Maybe they did. Maybe we just didn't get told the detail of that. But the point is they leave her, right? And it's just Mary now. And John left believing, but he didn't say anything. He didn't mention it to Peter and he didn't say anything to Mary. He kept it to himself. So we don't know if it was five minutes, maybe ten minutes. It couldn't have been long. But then Mary gets up the strength to be able to look into the tomb. And what happened? Two angels are sitting there. John and Peter, note here, make no mention of angels. So it must have been a different experience. The grave clothes were still there, but there were also two angels. And saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, once at the head and the other at the foot. Now, you guys are familiar with the Bible, so I'm going to ask you a question. And it's really awesome when we realise this. What are the first two words angels normally always say when they meet someone, a human? Fear not, do not be afraid. Yeah. But note here what they say to Mary. Woman, why are you crying? See, Mary was uh, so seeking after Jesus that the angels didn't intimidate her. Mary was so seeking after Jesus that she wasn't afraid. Mary was saying things like, you know what? She didn't actually say this, but this is what if Caleb was Mary. You know what, angels? If uh, No offense, but I don't care for you. I'm looking for Jesus. Angel one, angel two, I don't mean to be rude, but you don't oppress me. I'm seeking Jesus. Doesn't the world need a bit more of an attitude? of Mary Magdalene where we seek Jesus whatever angels you're in the tomb whatever I want Jesus show me Jesus and it goes on the conversation they have taken my Lord away so she recognizes that they're they're angels you know they they're not just people they have taken my Lord away And I don't know where they have put him. She's still not dreaming that Jesus is alive. She still thinks he's dead. 
At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. See what it says there? It says that she turned around. So she's recognised this angel. She's seen that she, she didn't see what she wanted to see in the tomb, being Jesus' body. So she must be slowly starting to etch out of the tomb again. And some older commentators actually think that as this conversation's finished, the angels motion to her to turn around, right? And there she sees the man standing there. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. Let me make two points. One's a, a biblical knowledge and the other's full of personal application. The biblical knowledge point is this. It's fascinating the amount of times that people saw the resurrected Jesus but did not instantly recognise him. Fascinating how many times people came in to talk with him but they didn't instantly recognise him. On the road to Emmaus, which we're going to do in this part of the series... We're going to re- see this. Uh, and then you have your non-believers as well. Why? The question is, why didn't they instantly recognise him? Well, some people can't say that it's a spiritual blinding of the eyes. And that could be very well true. And other people, so there's some other people think that it's because Jesus was still disfigured from his, from his suffering at the Passion and his crucifixion. Some people still think he was disfigured and it could have been that he was still disfigured. We know that he had the holes in his hands and in his feet and he still had the spear in the side. So why couldn't it have been that his face was still a bit beaten up from the the whippings and such that he had beforehand? When I say this in conversation with people, a lot of the time people don't like it. Like, wait, wait, hang on. When I go to heaven, I want to see the perfect Jesus, the beautiful Jesus. And let me clarify, I'm going to say that Jesus is beautiful in heaven no matter what. But if he's got some disfigurement, it's only going to add to his beauty when we get there. Because that disfigurement is going to show the love that he had for you. And it's going to show the grace that he actually paid for you. The other thing, the personal application one, is that isn't it fascinating how it's possible for someone to be in the presence of Jesus and not know it? Isn't it fascinating? And this could be us. It's a question we need to come back to quite frequently because we take it for granted over time. It could even be this morning. We're around all these people and you're thinking, wow, they really got into the music next to me this morning. They were singing their hearts out or this guy up the front's really passionate about this story, but I don't really get it. Maybe I'm not feeling it. Maybe you're in the place with Jesus right next to you and you don't even recognise that he's there. 
Now, I'm not putting that on anyone. I'm not saying that anyone is that. Maybe you need to yourself ask that, though. Can you see what the Bible's telling you? You can be right next to the resurrection of resurrected Jesus, but for some reason, you yourself are blinded to the fact he's here. And then we read in verse 15 what Jesus does. And I wonder if Mary, uh, Jesus was actually messing a little bit with Mary. Let's read it. Verse 15, it says, He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Jesus full well knew. <laughs> wonder if he's messing with her a little bit. And it, it, when we, um, why are you crying? Then God bless Mary Magdalene, who owed so much to Jesus, cast out seven demons, she responds, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will get him. Now, Mary may have been a beefy, strong gal. I'm not sure. But in my mind, I'm picturing a little Mary that has no hope of carrying a heavy man which has a hundred pounds of incense and fragrance in him. But her vision is so set. I'm going to come back to that point. She's so set on just Jesus. Where is he? I need him. I'll carry him away. I'll pick him up. You just tell me where he is and I'll do it. She's not thinking about her limitations. Where's Jesus and I'll do what I can. Jesus said to her, Mary. That's got to be the most powerful one-word sermon in someone's life, eh? Mary. Maybe it was the tone of his voice. Maybe it was how he said it. Maybe it was a spiritual awakening. But as soon as Jesus called out her name, Mary knew. I want you to encourage you this week, ask God, ask Jesus to call out your name. That's your homework. And I'd love to hear next week what happened when you did. Now, he's not necessarily going to answer you audibly, but he may do something incredible for you if you do. If you just say, God, call me out. There's your homework. Now, it's fine where I'm up to. There it is. Jesus called out a name. We go into 17. She replies, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, Mary, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Notice first in verse 17, Jesus had to tell Mary, do not cling to me. Some people have gotten the wrong idea from this verse. And it mainly comes from the old King James Version, which says, do not touch me, Mary. I have got to ascend to my father. Do not touch me, Mary. And it's because people thought that if Mary touched Jesus, it would affect his holiness and grace and he wouldn't be able to ascend. Right? But that's not true at all. We know that for sure because Jesus encourages people, touch my wounds. 
Touch my hands, touch my feet, see the spear in my side. So it couldn't have been the fact that Mary was touching Jesus. A better translation would actually be something that says, not touch me not, but stop clinging to me, Mary. Do you see the difference? It's not hard to figure out. Jesus asks, what are you looking for? She says, I'm looking for Jesus. He says, Mary. She says, Rabboni, and gives him a great big bear hug that won't let him go. I've lost you once, I'm never letting go, and you're never going anywhere again. Has anyone had that experience where someone just won't let go? (laughs) She's holding on to Jesus. That's not historically true, but that's how I imagine that going through. She's giving him this great big bear hug and Jesus says, let go of me, Mary. Probably with a bit of a laugh. Let go. Mary, I still got to go up to the Father sometime. I still got to ascend, you know. Not don't touch me, but come on, Mary, I can't be around forever. The other thing Jesus says to her is go to my brother and tell them. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. So not only was Mary the first one to see the resurrected Jesus, but she was the first messenger of the resurrected Jesus. She was the first person ever to be commissioned by Jesus after he was resurrected. Even though in those days a woman testimony wouldn't have even been accepted in the court of law. And even though one time she had been possessed by seven demons. Jesus didn't care. And let me tell you, he doesn't care still. He doesn't care what you passed, what you currently got going. He's saying, Mary, I've paid the debt for you and I'm willing, no matter what the cost, to forgive you your sin because I love you. Now go and tell others that I've done that for you and I'm willing to do that for them. When Jesus comes into our life and we resurrect, we see the resurrected Jesus, we have that experience, when we have our conversion, he commissions us to go out too. Maybe it's family, maybe your friends are here in church, great. Maybe it's in cafe. But the point is we're commissioned. It's not just receive, it's receive and go. I want to wrap up with two things. And from this, after that, that we'll close. First of all, I want you to know that, as we were saying, whatever your past, it doesn't disqualify you from Jesus working redemption. And even if you fall into the Mary Magdalene category, possessed with seven demons, Jesus will and will continue to work your redemp- his redemption in you. You're never too far gone for Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing, and it's in verse 17, is he says, go to my brethren in the older translation, go to my brother's, 
There's a couple of times I'm grateful that I'm not Jesus in the Bible because if I was the one appearing to Mary, I would, my, my version of it would have gone something like this. Go tell those weasels who all forsook me at the cross and everyone who would have, wouldn't stick up for me and fled like cowards and tell them I'm alive and I'm looking for them. <laughs> Thank goodness I'm not Jesus. <laughs> but rather he says, go tell my brethren, go tell my brothers. In our modern age, we'd say even sisterin. Go tell our brethren. Go tell our brothers and sisters. The love that he has brings you into the family. They make you a brother and sister of Christ. I used to call them my disciples. I used to call them my followers. But now I'm calling you my family. You are my brothers and sisters. That's what the resurrected Jesus invites you into. So, this week's Mary Magdalene. Next week we have Eric preaching, which is very exciting, and we're following another resurrection appearance to a disciple, to a follower of Jesus. So I encourage you to be here, but let's just pray as we wrap up the sermon. Thank you, Lord, for your resurrection. We thank you that you call us in to be your family. We thank you that uh, we, we have the privilege of calling you brother or you call us brother and we just are overwhelmed by that. We thank you for the ability to understand you're alive and not only understand but know the meaning behind your resurrection. Lord, we just pray now and thank you for all that you've done.